thing happened to me this week. Um, I got started working on this message. Um, I've been thinking about it for the last couple of weeks and really feeling like God was letting me know some of the things that I should talk about beyond just the story. And so, uh, I, you know, I got started working on it, and then in the middle of the week, um, I listened to Matt's message from last week. And so I missed it because I was in with the kids um, last week. And so I listened to his message. It was a great message. Um, if you missed it, I, I really recommend you listen to it on our website. Um, so I listened to it, and I thought, wow, he's saying a lot of the same things I was going to talk about. <laughs> and I started thinking, oh, maybe... Maybe what I thought I was going to talk about, or maybe I really don't need to say it. And then I feel like God kind of like tapped me on the shoulder and was like, um, Wendy, the whole point of this teaching series is that you're different than Matt in some pretty obvious ways, and that maybe even you just being different will let you um, have a different voice, sharing something from your perspective, and that that matters. And I was like, oh, right. Thanks, thanks God for that reminder. I needed that. Um, so I don't know about you, but I have needed this series to remind me that uh, my voice is important. A few months ago, I was introduced to uh, several studies that have been done over the last couple of decades that show that even though teachers they don't try to, that there's bias in the classroom. And they have found through these studies that boys usually are called on in class eight times more than girls are. And so when I was introduced to this um, idea, I really started to think about how that affects our society even today, how that affected me. Um, who are the voices that we aren't listening to as much as others? And so I looked up some of these studies and I found one that ended um, saying that from grade school all the way through university, that biased classroom interactions decrease women's self-confidence in their intellectual abilities. So um, last week, Matt talked a lot about what it feels like to lose your voice, right? Physically lose your voice, but also what it feels like to feel like nobody's listening to you. But I think we can all also admit that there are voices in our lives that we listen to more than others. You know, people that we have decided maybe as a society are more worthy for us to listen to or even to let them lead us. And I realized that was true in my own life, the voices that I was listening to when I chose to read books. And I looked at um, the books that I was reading and what I found was um, even nonfiction and fiction that largely I was reading books that were written by white men, white American men. And so I realized that I wasn't listening to all the voices that I needed to. And so in the last couple of years, I've tried to be really intentional about reading more books that are written by women, people of color, people who aren't American, and just listening to different voices that I need to hear and I need to learn from. But we all have biases. Um, and maybe it isn't about gender or race. Maybe it's just there are people that we don't think of as being successful, whatever that means to us, and we choose not to listen to those voices in our lives. And I think that that is true in the church as well. I think that we elevate some voices over others. But that isn't how God works. If we look through the Bible and the stories, what we see is that God chooses to use people who are on the margins of society. 
He chooses to use the uneducated, the poor, the broken, those even with moral, questionable character. He uses the really young and he uses the really old. He uses the oppressed. And as we will continue to see in this series, he uses women. He gives them a voice, and amazing things happen when God's people choose to listen to those voices. So I have to admit to you this morning that um, I didn't know the woman, the story of the woman that we're going to talk about this morning. I kept looking at all of these lists of different women in the Bible um, who were leaders, and I kept seeing this woman's name over and over again, Huldah. And I was like, I don't, I don't remember that name. And so I asked Larry, my husband, and I was like, uh, do you know who the, that is? And he's like, I, I don't know who that is. And I thought, this is a little bit weird, because we grew up in the church since we were really little, every you know week going to Sunday school and listening to new Bible stories. Didn't hear it. We also went to college and got degrees in biblical studies. Um, so we had to take Old Testament classes, and we still didn't know who uh, this woman was. So um, what's interesting is I, I prepared this message, um, and then I worked on the kids' class. Um, they have curriculum that they uh, also learn lessons, and this series that they're um, learning about is all about the Bible. And so it's a curriculum that I get from another church that does a great job writing it. And so I didn't know what the Bible story was for the week. It's the exact same story that we're learning about today. So if you have kids in the classroom, um, you should know that. Interesting, the woman is not mentioned in the Bible story of both of the kids' classes. And so I asked our teachers if they would please include um, who Holda is. So um, I would encourage you to ask them about the story, ask them who Holda is if they know, and if they don't, you should know and you can tell them. Um, so it, I hope this morning if you go home with nothing else that you will at least know who she is and what her story is. So last week uh, Matt told the story of Deborah that is found in the book of Judges and he kind of talked about how you know the nation of Israel it was an early just in the beginning of them as a nation. And so um, there's a lot of problems going on in, in Judges, a lot of moral chaos. And what we see is kind of the cycle that the, the Israelite people go through. They, um, they fall away from God. They don't follow him, don't keep the laws and, um, and that he made for them to be in this special relationship with one another. And so um, nations surrounding kind of attack. They're at war and battle. And then they cry out to God, and God shows up in powerful ways, saves them, and then they follow him for a while, and then they go back, right? And so there's this cycle over and over again. So at the end of Judges, what happens is the Jewish people say, okay, what would solve the problem is if we had a king. If we had a king like everybody else, then we would be safe, and we would have security, and we would be protected. And what's interesting in that is that God has been telling them over and over again, you're different. You're different because you have a special relationship with me. And I've made this special promise to you, and you've made a promise to me, and that's what gives you protection, and that's what gives you security. And they were kind of like, no, I just want to be like everybody else. I want the security that everybody else has. Has anybody ever felt like God is <laughs> speaking that message to you sometimes? You're special. No, I just want to be like everybody else. 
And so that is what happens. Jewish people, they cry out to God, give us a king, give us a king. And he tries to kind of talk them out of it. He's like, listen, guys, um, in, in uh, for Samuel chapter 8, he gives them the list of things that are probably going to happen. Well, it's God, so it's going to happen, right? He knows. It's not like, uh, maybe this will happen. It's God. He knows it's going to happen. So he says, um, if you do this, the king is going to take your sons, and he's going to make them serve with chariots and horses, and they're going to be put in front of the chariots and run in front of the chariots, and he will assign some of your sons to be commanders, and others he will assign to plow his ground and reap his harvest. Others he's going to make them make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He's going to take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, and he's going to take the best of your fields, and he's going to take a tenth of your grain. He's going to take your male and female servants. He's going to take a tenth of your flocks, and you are going to become his slaves. Not, doesn't sound like, you know, a great thing. Um, and he even says, and when that day comes that you say, please save us from this king, he says, I'm not going to listen. Um, but he says all this through Samuel, the prophet Samuel. And in verse 19, it says, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us, and then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. And so Samuel heard this, and God said, okay, give them what they want. Give them a king. And so Samuel appoints the first king, King Saul, to rule over them. And Saul looks like the king they want. He is tall. He's good-looking. He's powerful, but pretty soon they learn that his character is not what God wants in a leader of his people. He is dishonest, he lacks integrity, and he is incapable of acknowledging his mistakes. Not what God wants in a leader. And he openly disobeys God, and so Samuel um, tells Saul that God is going to replace him. And so he replaces him with this young boy who is a, just a shepherd boy from this little village in Bethlehem named David. And under David's reign, we see the nation of Israel grow in strength and in power. And we see a king who is deeply and humbly loves and follows the Lord, and he trusts God. And he isn't perfect. He makes mistakes, big mistakes. But unlike Saul, he's able to repent and acknowledge his mistakes and acknowledge his sin and return to God. And so then David has a son named Solomon who reigns after him. But after Solomon's reign, what we see is the nation of Israel splits into two different nations, um, the northern nation of Israel, the southern nation of uh, Judah. And these um, nations are ruled by king after king. And it, it doesn't go well. <laughs> if you read the stories, they kind of fall away from God for a long time, and they worship idols. And you can find those stories in First and Second Kings, including the story we're going to read today. But this morning, I also want us to look at, this passage is also in, the stories also in um, Second Chronicles. Now, First and Second Chronicles was written as one big book, so it's one big book, you know. Um, but we split it up as two in our Bibles, but it really has one big theme. And that is that it's looking at the past, Israel's past, and starts all the way with Adam and just kind of shows all that God's relationship with them. 
and it really sticks with David for a long time, the good things about David's reign. And then it shows what their future will be. And so we're going to look at a story in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, and this is around 600 years after Judges, when Deborah um, led, and it's about 400 years after David's reign. And so I just think about uh, the United States, isn't quite 250 years old yet, and um, we've changed a lot, right? A lot of things have happened. And so imagine 400 years, the difference between David and what's happened um, to the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. So chapter 34, verse 1 says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he followed the ways of his father David. So that's figurative. It isn't his father David. It's his great, you know, ancestor David. Um, and it says, not turning aside to the right or to the left. So these are just the, like the cliff notes. This is what's going to happen. We're going to talk about King Josiah, who follows God, who returns the, um, the nation of Judah back to following the Lord of his ancestors. So verse 3, it says, In the eighth year of the reign, while he was still young, so he's 16, um, he began to seek the God of his father, David. And so he, um, you know, was not raised uh, like David raised his son to love God and follow him, and yet he knows the stories, and he, he decides he's going to make a change. And so he begins to follow this God of, of David. And then it says in the 12th year, he begins to go around and purge all of Judah of all the places where they used to worship idols. And so they have all these different spots um, where they built things, where they would go to worship these idols. And so there's altars, there's, um, it says Asherah poles, and it's, um, he goes around and he just, he takes them down and it says he, he makes them into dust and he scatters it everywhere. And as I was reading it, I was thinking about, um, it just made me think of taking down the Confederate flag and Confederate statues in places um, in America. Like, it's an act of repentance, right? This act of saying, um, we have sin in our past. And so we're going to take down those signs and, as a way of repenting for what we did that was wrong. And that's what Josiah does. And then it says in the 18th year of Josiah's reign that he decides he's going to rebuild the temple. And the temple was built by Solomon, um, and it's beautiful, and um, it was kind of, you know, this thing that they were so proud of. But since then, it's kind of fallen into disrepair because they don't value their relationship with God anymore. And so that's why Josiah wants to rebuild it, because he wants to show we value our relationship, our unique relationship with God. And so he decides he's going to take the money um, that others have given to build this temple, and he gives it to the priest, um, Hilkiah, and he, they go to fix the temple. And so in verse 14, it says, while they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. You remember, God gives Moses not only the Ten Commandments, but he gives many, many laws to how he wants his people to live so that they can be in this um, special relationship with one another. And it's um, 
what we can find in Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, that's most likely what they found in the temple. It was kind of um, the first time that we talk about actually finding scripture and that um, they're looking at it in a new way. So it's the book of Deuteronomy. So Hilkiah um, says to the secretary of the um, of the king, he says, I found this book of the law in the temple, so I'm going to give it to you, and you go back and read it to King Josiah. And so that's what he does, and we don't really know how long this book has been lost, but it's pretty clear that the information in it has been largely forgotten. So it says in 19, um, when the king heard the words of the, Lord, of the law, he tore his robes, and he gave these orders to five men, Hilkiah, the chief priest, his, his secretary, and then three other high-ranking officials. Some are religious leaders and some are political leaders. And he says, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the remnant in Israel and Judah, so those who are wanting to follow a God, what is written in this book that has been found. Because great is the Lord's anger that is poured out on us because those who have gone before us have not kept the word of the Lord. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written in this book. So Josiah is upset. And so he needs to know that this book is real. Like, is this really the book that came from Moses? You know, it's been hundreds and hundreds of years. Is this really the book? And what it says, is this really what we're supposed to do? We have not been keeping this law. And so he's really distressed, and he, he needs to authenticate this book. And so he sends these uh, five officials on a mission. Go find out what this, where this book came from. That this is from God. And so he doesn't, it isn't enough that Hilkiah found it in the temple. He needs somebody else to authenticate it. And what's interesting at this time, if you read the, through First and Second Kings, you see that God often uses prophets um, to go around and kind of talk to the Jewish people and say, the way you're living, it's not okay. Repent. Come back to me. And he even, oftentimes these um, prophets will predict the things that are going to happen to them, judgment, and even also predict the justice that will come for those who follow him. And so we know about these prophets, men like Elijah and Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Micah, Isaiah, you know, books in the Bible that we know about. But during this reign, there are also some prophets that we know about, um, Zephaniah, Nahum, and Jeremiah. We know a lot about Jeremiah. He was probably the most well-known, and he lived around this area at the time. But they don't go to these prophets they choose to go to a woman named Huldah. And so in verse 22, it says, Hilkiah and those the king had sent with them went to speak to the prophet Huldah, who was the wife of Sholem, the keeper of the wardrobe. And so he has a, he's an official for the king as well. And then it says she lived in Jerusalem in the new quarter. And why that's important is because the new quarter is the area in Jerusalem where the scholars lived. And so it's telling us that she kind of lived around people who studied um, lots of different things. And so um, that's where they found her. And they knew about her. We don't know much about her. It doesn't give us a lot of information about her. But they certainly knew about her and that she was the person to go to to authenticate the word of God. 
And so Huldah's response is to speak as a prophet. And so she sends a message back. She looks at the, the book and she says, sends a message back to the king that destruction is coming for his kingdom and his people because of them, the broken covenant that was made with God when the Jewish people decided they were going to worship idols. And so can you imagine? Um, that's not a message, you know, you want to send to the powerful person, but she um, does it. And then she sends an additional message to the king. She says in verse 27, because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before God when you heard what he spoke against this place and its people, and because you humbled yourself before me and you tore your robes and you wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. And so I will gather you to your ancestors, and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see the disaster that I am going to bring on this place and on those who live here. And so that's what happens. Um, they take that message back to the king, and it says that the king renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, his statutes and decrees with all his heart and with all his soul and to obey the words of the covenant that are written in this book. So he makes, he's humble, and he repents, and he re-acknowledges that covenant relationship that the Jewish people are supposed to have with God, and he does it personally. And then he goes throughout Jerusalem, and he asks everybody else to make that same pledge. And the chapter ends saying, As long as he lived, they did not fail to follow the Lord, the God of their ancestors. So there it is, the answer to who's Huldah. This woman that has been kind of hidden in the Bible, even though her story was recorded twice. You can find it two different places. It was important enough that two different authors included it in the Bible. And so now the question that we have to kind of ask is, why Huldah? Why go to this woman over other experts and prophets? And why does nobody seem to think it's weird to go to this woman? Nobody seems to question her knowledge or the fact that God is using a woman to speak to these men. Nobody's saying, hey, wait a minute. I don't think we can submit to the wisdom or God leading from a woman, which is strange. It's, it's a time of patriarchy. So why use Hulda? Could it be that this question is why we don't really know her story. Could it be that Hulda and how God uses her doesn't quite fit into some long-held traditions of how God uses women? And so we don't really talk about her because she's too confusing. It makes us question how God uses women today. And so I mentioned before that Larry and I grew up in a church culture where it was taught and um, believed that God doesn't allow men to submit to a woman teaching God's word. And so we um, were talking with one another, and we were just talking about how um, the justifications that we were kind of taught of why God sometimes uses women in the Bible. And um, we were raised in different churches, and yet we were both like, yeah, I heard that too. Um, this idea that God only uses women like Deborah and Abigail when he doesn't have 
a suitable man to do the job. And so that's only when he'll use a woman. Um, but that d explanation, it doesn't really work for Holda. There were obviously some men who could have done the job. And so Christian leaders um, have struggled with this over the years, and some of them had said, well, Hulda was used in a private consultation, right? <laughs> she wasn't a public, public ministry. Um, this is still written about. Uh, and, and yet other men and women, they look at this story and other stories, and it's really led them to question the long-held beliefs um, of many in the church that men shouldn't listen to the voice of women in the church. In 2010, a book was written called How I Changed My Mind About Women in Leadership, Compelling Stories from Prominent Evangelical Leaders. And so in circles and churches that once believed that women's roles in the church were limited, they've chosen to take kind of a fresh look at the Bible and these stories, and they've changed their mind, they've changed their policies, and they've changed their practices. And my hope is someday... When people read this passage, they will say, why not Hulda? But how do we get there? How can we learn from the themes and the lessons in the ancient book of Chronicles? What is our road to reconciliation, whether it's gender reconciliation or racial reconciliation or even reconciliation to God? What's the road that really brings us to shalom, the shalom that we had in the garden in the beginning? Well, the theme that keeps popping up for me over and over again as we look through the book of Chronicles is the story that God humbles the powerful and he uses the humble in powerful ways. That it takes humility and repentance and reconciliation. It took David's humility. It took Josiah's humility for their kingdom to be restored to that special relationship God wanted to have with them. And so what that means for us today is that we can expect that God is going to use us even if we aren't the voices that our society elevates. That God will elevate our voice and he will choose to use us. And we can expect that God is going to use people in our lives from some unexpected places maybe humble places, to teach us and bring us closer to God. I think one of those places he is um, going to use those voices is from the very young, from the youth and kids in our church and in our neighborhood, if we choose to listen to them. Oftentimes we talk about how adults, we, we need to spend time with kids because we have so much to teach them. And that's true, but they have a lot that they can teach us if we're willing to listen to them. Tell them about people in our lives who are struggling, whether they're struggling to pay their rent or struggle with depression. Will we still listen to them and learn from them? Or people who don't have degrees, but they have years of experience that can teach us, that we can listen to if we humble ourselves and listen to their voice. What of the artists around us? Those people who see the world differently and create in order to teach and to move us? Can we quiet ourselves and what we think we know and listen to God through the voices of people we aren't really used to listening to? So over the fall, uh, as the Me Too movement kind of hit social media, um, I only am on Facebook, but um, I noticed on my Facebook page 
friends, good friends of mine that I respect, uh, male leaders in the church, many of them, who kind of went on uh, Facebook to talk about what the response of the church should be. And so they um, debated with one another where the blame should lie, um, what the role of the church should be, what actions should, what action steps should be taken. And I noticed myself getting a little frustrated because as one man after another kind of entered this conversation, they were just like debating with one another. I didn't see any of them say, wait a minute, maybe we should ask some of the women that we know and respect and work with and say, hey, what do you think? You can help us. What has your experience been? And yet, I know there are times that, for myself, that I discuss and read about issues like racial reconciliation or immigrant, immigration reform, educational reform, and I don't bother to ask people in my life who have personal experience with these issues and say, what do you think? What has your experience been? What can I learn from you? We all have work to do on the road to reconciliation on this road to shalom. And that work is going to take humility and it's going to take repentance. But if we're humble like David and like Josiah, God's going to use us. And he's going to use the unexpected like Huldah and all the other women in the Bible. So you might not know that during this series, the Iceland and the worship team have chosen to lead us in worship songs that are largely written by women. And these women follow a long line of women who have led people by the songs that they have written, including Moses' sister Miriam. Her songs are recorded for us in Exodus. Uh, Deborah wrote a song that's recorded in Judges. Perhaps the most well-known is Jesus' mother Mary after she is told by an angel that she's going to carry the Messiah she writes a song, and that's recorded for us in the Gospels. And so right now I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward and to lead us in a particular song that um, they chose. Um, and we're going to take a time to remember what Jesus did so that we could be reconciled to him, that he was the example for us, that he humbled himself, and he stepped away from his power and he humbled himself to become a human. And he humbled himself by dying a very painful death. And so that's what we remember when we take the bread and the juice and we go to the table. That's what Jesus asked us to do, to just remember what step he took so that we could have that special relationship with him again. We're special to him and that our protection and our security comes through him. And so the song that we're going to sing was written by a woman named Frances Ridley Havergal, and she wrote this song in the 19th century. So it's a hymn that if you grew up singing hymns in church, you will recognize. Um, along with being a poet and a songwriter, she was also a scholar of the Bible, which is interesting to me during this time. It would have been rare for her, but it said that she was proficient in reading both ancient uh, Hebrew and Greek. And uh, so she was an intellectual woman, interesting woman. Um, it says she died at 42, so she did a lot in her life. But she wrote this song after a particularly um, powerful moment 
where she felt like God used her in a, in a powerful way to show the love of God to other people. And she wrote that that is what she felt like her calling was, above all other things, to be a personal spiritual influence on others. And so she writes these phrases. Take my voice. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my intellect and use every power that you choose. And so I pray over us all this morning that that would meet us in the deepest part of ourselves and that we would believe it to be true, that God is going to use our voice. God is going to use your voice. He's going to use our intellect and every power that he chooses to use. So let's join her as we worship. <laughs> 